When we talk about people who are trying to come to the United States from other countries, who are they? What are their stories? What kind of people are they that are seeking to be among us? We'll be talking with Bill Halston of the Human Rights Initiative about just that on Good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program for another conversation, Bill Halston, who is the executive director of the Human Rights Initiative here in Dallas, dealing with asylum uh, seekers, asylees and refugees. And Bill, thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Well, in our first episode of this conversation, we had a, a wide-ranging discussion, but it really was much more about ideas, principles, legal principles, and the like. And I'd like to uh, humanize that a little bit as we move forward and talk a little more about the human drama of this. Mm. So, not too long ago, a friend of mine locally uh, reached out to me uh, who'd been working at a pizza joint. Uh, he was from Kosovo and he uh, was a political uh, asylum seeker. He was living in this country for four years, washing dishes after owning his own business, a coffee business, but he took the wrong side politically, and he was uh, attacked multiple times with a gun to his head uh, and was shot at uh, by political opposition, but he could not get a hearing. Uh, within four years of being here, he had a wife and two kids at home. He, no one would approve his kids and wife to come here because they feared they would never leave. And then we'd have another of the roughly, what, 12 million people who are here uh, who are waiting uh, for the, their, their processing. And finally, notwithstanding all of the challenges about going home and the dangers of it, he had to go. Mm. Uh, he went home and took his family to another country uh, where they accepted him. And uh, this is part of the struggle here. I mean, this poor man was uh, in, in deep agony over missing his family for four years. And, and the system was just overwhelmed. And, and then we have policies that wouldn't even allow us to consider his case uh, because it was too difficult to prove, perhaps. So, these are the kinds of stories, most of the time we think of the southern border, but it's, it's all over the, the world people are coming to us, right? We have the, actually the, the most common countries for our clients, uh, asylum seekers, are um, is the Congo. We've had a lot of clients from okay. the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of Ethiopian clients. Historically, we've had a lot of Eritrean clients, mm -hmm. Cameroonians. The biggest increase in the last, I'd say, three years has been um, Venezuela. Uh, mm -hmm. We've had a lot of right. Venezuelan clients. You know, our the uh, Rwanda. We've had a lot of clients from right. Rwanda over the years. So these, um, um, and then women from um, countries that practice female genital mutilation, yes. Egypt, uh, the Gambia, <clears throat> and uh, homosexuals from many countries in mm -hmm. Africa and transgender individuals mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. uh, Central America. So people are coming from all over the world. And one of the things I'd say about asylum seekers, uh, in my experience, is that 
They actually have a lot of respect for the United States, and it's an, it's kind of a brutal uh, awakening for them when they realize how difficult the process of obtaining asylum here is and how adversarial it is, mm-hmm. um, because they really hold the United, the United States is held in very, or has been historically held in very high esteem because of our uh, welcoming uh, nature. We, we really are a country that likes to talk about being exceptional. Correct. That exceptionalism is hard to define and it's defined differently, but one of the ways we've talked about American exceptionalism is that we actually are a country that is uh, founded on ideals of humanity, freedom, opportunity, uh, equality, those sorts of things, uh, things that are in, uh, described nicely in uh, Emma Lazarus's poem uh, at at the Statue of Liberty, uh, things of that nature, Uh, but um, that's beginning to change. Uh, When we talk about how we're full, the country is full, we have no room, Uh, how does that change the nature of our self-understanding as a country? Well, what I'd say is that it's challenging our understanding. It's not living up to the ideals that I think most Americans still ascribe to. Mm-hmm. I think most of us like to think of, our, of this country as that kind of place that, mm-hmm. um, you know, we look back on our history, the things we're ashamed of as a country are things like uh, turning away the SS St. Louis that right. was full of Jews in the 1930s. Right. I right. think most of us would want to go back in time and say, no, we'll take as many Jews into this country as we could. Mm-hmm. And so when we, when we, A, forget that history, yes. and B, replicate it by shutting the doors to desperate people, mm-hmm. we're we're setting ourselves, uh, or, or, well, I guess I'll be more blunt about it. We're engaged in shameful behavior, okay. and we're going to be ashamed of this someday. Well, one of my questions is, what has changed in us as a nation? Because uh, this, was, this used to not be as much of a political issue partisan-wise. I mean, when you, when you listen to old speeches of people like Ronald Reagan, for instance, Ronald Reagan talked about America in the way that we're describing, where he said what makes us so exceptional is that, uh, you know, if you go to another country, uh, you, you are Italian or you are French or you are whatever by virtue of having been born there, and if you move there, they don't think of you as being French or Italian or whatever. But when you come here, uh, you may be Italian or French or you may be Guatemalan or whatever, but once you're an American, you're an American. And you have equal rights and equal identity as an American. We're not thinking the same way about that. What has changed in us culturally that this has shifted so much in terms of our self-identity as a nation, Bill? Well, I think, First of all, I think 9-11 was a real watershed event in our history. I think we became much more um, concerned about security. I think that people became more comfortable trading 
liberty for uh, an illusion of safety. Okay. I think the economic, the recession of 2008 mm-hmm. uh, was a very, um, you know, it was, a, it was a traumatizing event in our economy. Yes. And I think people, um, th- then with the globalization, uh, the decrease in manufacturing jobs in, okay. the, in the country has caused people right. to be more right. fearful and uh, have mm-hmm. a have a, a more of an attitude of scarcity. Yes. You know, as the middle class has shrunk, right. you know, people are are feeling they're more susceptible to that manipulation yes. of people saying, "Hey, there people are trying to take your job." Well, and and in fairness, <clears throat> you know, it, this is one of the. Uh, ironies of the way things are. We we actually have an expanding economy, and what's known as, practically speaking, full employment right, right. now, which is to say, if the if the economy is going to continue to expand, we're going to have to have more workers. Absolutely. And yet, what we have had is a contraction of certain kinds of workers and certain kinds of jobs, which tend to be um, the less educated white. Uh, manufacturing positions, uh, and uh, so th- that's where a lot of the losses has taken place, and the blame for people who are taking their jobs, where the jobs are really not being taken by immigrants, but they are moving offshore uh, in, in a lot of ways. So I often like to say that there's no such thing as a good economy, economy or a bad economy. There's only where you are in the economy uh, that that makes a difference about that. But what you're talking about is the complexity of this, that it's not as easy as just saying, well, we have more people coming or less people coming or the right people coming or the wrong people coming. There are a lot of factors uh, that have made this happen. I guess one thing I'd wanna add to that is, uh, in some ways it seems like a very abrupt change, but in other ways it's not. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is, we've always struggled with this tension in our country. It just depends on what group of migrants we're talking about. Uh, People talked about Catholics, people talked about Jews, people talked about Greeks, like every wave of immigration, Irish, met with a nationalist reaction. Chinese, you know, one of our first, most restrictive changes in the law around immigration was the Chinese Exclusion Act. So this right. sort of fear of the other has always um, uh, encountered our identity well, as a welcoming country. And, and I'm a New Yorker, and you know, I, I I do I remember when the tension was greater about um, you know Catholic European immigrants. So. Uh, the original immigration into this country of people voluntarily coming were essentially Northern European Protestants. And so white Northern European Protestants are the people who sort of define this is what America will be. We're not gonna talk about Native Americans, of course, and where that was, nor will we talk much about those who came against their will in terms of uh, the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, and, and, and how all of that gets processed. But once you have established a kind of hegemony of uh, a kind of immigrant, uh, then suddenly uh, that gets challenged with the potato famine and uh, the influx of Irish Catholics and then uh, the influx of Italian Catholics as well. And 
you know, we're not hiring Irish here, we're not hiring, which is why you, you end up with public servants like a, a high percentage of, of Irish are in the police force, for instance, in Boston and in, in New York. Eventually we process that, right? But then, then the, the Jewish uh, migration because of pogroms in Europe and the like, and, and then the question is, you know, can we find a place for them? And, and, and every new wave of immigrants ends up in the Lower East Side, you know, and, and, and eventually it's another group and another group and another group. We're in that place now again, and we seem to not be able to figure out that human beings are human beings regardless of what their religion is, uh, what their um, native tongue is, and uh, somehow uh, how do we get to the point where we recognize the full humanity of everyone knocking on our door? I'd say um, two things. One is just from a point of compassion, realizing that our state here in the United States is based upon the accident of birth, being born yes. in a place that mm -hmm. had these kind of resources available to us. And then another thing is thinking about uh, immigration not at, from a place of compassion, but out of just the practical uh, realization of how much immigration has contributed to our country. So mm -hmm. someone asked me during the a refugee crisis in Europe a few years ago where there was a million uh, refugees from Syria and Afghanistan coming into Germany. And so I was at an event, somebody said, what do you do with that? And I said, well, okay, if we're here in Richardson, if you go three miles from here, you'll see acres and acres of Vietnamese right. uh, restaurants right. and businesses and banks right. and grocery stores right. that were all established by people that uh, came here with nothing, right. spoke another language, actually yes. coming from a country that we had been at war with, right. many of them uh, not Protestants. Right. And uh, that's worked out really well for us as right. a country, as in a community. And um, unless you just don't like bon me sandwiches, uh, you've got to admit the, the, that benefit. And right. we just forget that. Right. I heard a story on NPR just a few days ago about this man who was a, a tutor in mathematics. Uh, he had tutored hundreds of gifted mathematicians mm -hmm. um, as a teacher in, I think it was from Florida. And he was a refugee from the Hungarian uh, revo uh, uprising in yeah, okay. 1956. Wow. That's what drove him to the United States. Wow. And you go an example and uh, over example of right. that. Right. Well, obviously, we hope that there would be. Uh, successful revolutions in countries that would uh, make stable countries all over the world that we wouldn't have to be the place where everyone had to come in order to seek right. this same kind of experience. But I think we need to talk, Bill, in uh, our final segment here in just a moment about uh, some concrete ways where uh, we see what needs to be fixed, what needs to change if, if we're going to be able uh, to be the kind of country that we really want to be. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. Great. The Good God Program is a project of Faith Commons, a nonprofit organization that I founded in 2018 to promote the common good. Think of a commons on a campus and how you can bring 
all your faith and people from all corners of the campus together. Think of the city that way. Think of the country that way. Faith Commons aims to bring people together to promote greater understanding and peace throughout our communities. You can find more information about it at faithcommons.org. We're back with Bill Halston of the Human Rights Initiative. And Bill, we've been continuing to talk all around the causes, root causes of immigration issues, asylum seekers, why they do, uh, what's the difference between an asylee and a re refugee, all of those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings. Tell us about some of the human beings, the human stories that you've encountered so we can understand. You know, it's, it's the reason I left my law practice to do this work full time is just how inspiring I've found the people that I've had the privilege of representing. Uh, one individual really always springs to my mind. This was a man who had been a pro-democracy activist in Ethiopia from the time of Haile Selassie. Oh, wow. Yeah, so his whole life had been involved in political activism. He was uh, a school teacher during the Derg era, which was the Marxist uh, government of Ethiopia. And he was teaching school one day and men with AK-47s came into the classroom and arrested him and another teacher and they took him to a prison where he remained for the next five years. I asked him if he had a trial, he said no, uh, we were just told we were counter-revolutionaries. He was there, they drank untreated river water, they had inadequate food or medical care, and then one day they came and said, you're rehabilitated, you may go. So he'd lost his job as a teacher because of his activism. Uh, so he and his wife bought a bus and they started a small transportation business. The Derg was overthrown by the current uh, administration, um, which was a totalitarian regime. And he devoted many years of uh, activism for uh, promoting pro-democracy candidates for office in multiple parliamentary elections. And for that, he was uh, persecuted. I tried his case in immigration court here in Dallas, and I asked him on the stand, I said, sir, you were an activist for your whole life, right? And he said, yes. And I said, as a matter of fact, you were arrested five different times, weren't you, because of that activism? He said, yes, that's true. And I said, and you were beaten every single time you were in prison, weren't you? And he said, yes. And I said, as a matter of fact, the last time you were in prison, you were tortured. And he said, yes, that's true. And I said, describe for the court how you were tortured. And he did, he detailed the torture that he received. And I said, and every single time you were released from prison, you were told to stop your political activity, weren't you? And he said, yes. And I said, and yet you continued, why? And the 62-year-old man got tears in his eyes and he looked at the judge and he said, because there's a price for freedom, there's a cost for democracy. I did that for my family. And I remember thinking, what a privilege it was to be a lawyer, to have the opportunity to meet a man like that, much less represent him. Right. And the question is, are we as a country better off because he chose to come to the United States mm -hmm. and seek refuge here and become a citizen? Right, right. So you clicked off in his story several of the uh, requirements for uh, becoming uh, grant, being granted asylum in our country, um, persecution, um, political um, issues, and uh, things of that nature. So, you, you know, he, he fulfilled those uh, criteria. Uh, 
who are the kind of people who don't meet that bar who come here? Well, I, I guess uh, one thing, it's very difficult to get asylum. So, I, uh, you know, there's, I think presently around 40% of people are successful in their cases. Most of them fail because of a lack of proof. Um, mm -hmm. It's just difficult to obtain evidence of things that have happened to you in your home country. Sometimes it's because it's really, um, you may have had some really bad things happen, but they're not connected to one of those five grounds. You're coming from abject poverty. Yeah. Maybe you're someone who's fleeing generalized conflict from a place like Syria, mm -hmm. where there was you know, lots of death and destruction all around you, and you were afraid and you fled, but you can't prove that you as an personal. individual were ever targeted. Right. Right. So those, those kind of cases are unsuccessful. And then, at the moment, uh, the pr former attorney general uh, has sought, to some extent successfully, to destroy case law protection for uh, women escaping domestic violence. So those cases are very challenging at the point. Oh, and then there's one last thing. Uh, the judges uh, judge credibility. And so the asylum seekers have to fill out a very, very detailed statement of what happened to them. And if they testify inconsistently with that, they're found not credible. So, so people lose cases on that as well. So I'd like to distinguish between uh, asylum seekers who are coming for one of these five reasons of uh, their being in personal jeopardy in some way, uh, and those who are seeking to be immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, many people, I think, confuse uh, asylum seekers and uh, those who are uh, coming into the country illegally because they don't go through the formal process of applying for immigration status and waiting their turn in line to be uh, granted immigration status. Uh, so uh, l let's distinguish between those folks. The people who are coming illegally, crossing uh, into this country, uh, are people who are not necessarily seeking asylum, uh, but they are seeking work or they're seeking you know, to come for other reasons. How do you describe the difference between those folks? Well, um, I guess fundamentally what I'd say is that uh, our immigration laws really don't provide many mechanisms for people to immigrate legally. Uh, there's really a very, very um, inadequate systems for people who want to just come here and work. Uh, that almost doesn't exist, uh, particularly for construction workers and restaurant workers and okay. skilled workers. So there's, and you referred to a line, there's barely a line, there really isn't a line for people to, to really? wait in, uh, to, okay. to get here. Because you hear that language all the time, you do. just get to the back of the line. It's usually from somebody who said, I quote, did it the right way. Well, in the vast majority of circumstances, the right way is they married an American citizen. That's uh -huh. how most people I became le obtained legal status here in this country, yes. is they married an uh, American citizen, and that does provide you the most direct way to become a citizen. A lot of okay. people do that, but you don't you don't meet people who said, yeah, I waited in line in order to come up here and be a concrete worker. And it's not really a line for that person. So if I, if I am in Guatemala, say, and I want to work in the U.S. as a uh, 
agricultural um, worker or a construction worker or something like that. Uh, how would I go about applying legally to immigrate so that I could work in the United States? I, I think that barely exists. I know that there are programs that uh, agriculture, you know, like commercial. Well, I don't think that person could really initiate that. I think okay. employers here in the United States, okay. there are processes for them to bring right. in seasonal agricultural workers, and they the so-called do that. guest worker program. Right, there are things right. like that that, right. that exist, but they're inadequate, and our economy's been based on this. Uh, millions, hundreds of thousands and millions of people who right. come up here and have been working illegally. Right. And then in the more, even more problematic uh, and sympathetic group are their children that they brought up here that right. were, you know, small children uh, when they came to the United States. And none of those people have status either. And it's a, we're, yeah. we're really, we continue to just kick the can down the road Right. And not deal with okay. What? How do we? How do we pass laws that recognize that there are people here illegally, but they're working and they're not violating our criminal laws? How do we help them get status so they can stay? Bill, many people who are um, watchers or listeners of this Good God program are people of faith. Um, they want very much to put their faith into action. And on a matter like this, uh, I think most of us don't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. So previously you'd said, get informed, you know, learn the facts, here are some resources, we can do that. What's the advocacy or the action that individuals and churches and uh, you know, synagogues and people of, of faith can take to help affect change? Well, I'd say uh, two things. One is not related to change, just to the social service needs of people who are here, asylum seekers, while they're waiting for their cases to be uh, heard. They have tremendous, they're very resourceful, hardworking people, but they have a lot of needs. And some of them, uh, you, you, you don't qualify to work immediately. So some people aren't able to work at all while they're mm -hmm. waiting. And so they have housing needs, uh, very, very, there really are no housing resources for asylum seekers in Dallas. Wow. They exist in Fort Worth. Okay. So they need really fundamental things like toiletries, um, English lessons, wow. uh, clothing, food, mm -hmm. he health care, huge need for psychological services, counseling wow. for traumatized people. All of those are needs. And faith communities could, if they wanted to act uh, collaboratively, which with each other could actually solve those problems for okay. asylum seekers. So on the advocacy side, you know, representatives actually do care what the faith community thinks. And so uh, calling your congressperson, your congressional representative and say, you know, I, I don't actually favor uh, turning away asylum seekers. Uh, right. I don't actually favor having the lowest uh, refugee resettlement numbers in modern history. I, mm -hmm. I don't uh, favor uh, 
having immigration judges as a part of the executive branch as opposed to being truly independent as Mm -hmm. judges in the judicial branch. Those are policies that I favor. I don't actually, uh, I don't actually favor your vote against the Violence Against Women Act uh, renewal last week, you know, and they care uh, when you say that. Okay, so I think we should clarify that uh, this is a federal matter. It's not a local or state matter particularly. Uh, there are implications for local and state uh, uh, elected officials, but for the most part, we're talking about contacting your congressperson in Washington, D.C., or in their local office, and your senator, uh, and uh, the current uh, executive administration as, as well, in order to get uh, your opinion uh, clarified. Of course, we have a problem with gerrymandered districts where it's difficult sometimes to get your dissenting opinion to be heard because uh, our congresspersons are being elected uh, often by such grand majorities that if you have a difference of opinion it's hard to to be taken seriously. But I think what you're saying is uh, the, the burden is still on using your voice and in being a person of faith who acts. You can't necessarily be responsible for the outcome Uh, for the result or the conclusion, but if you want to be the kind of person who uh, lives in this world uh, as uh, committed to compassion and justice, uh, taking some step uh, to be able to engage is important. Well, I think uh, I read recently the words of William Wilberforce, the first time it was a British abolitionist and a, a devout Christian, went to Parliament and he testified about the uh, details of the slave trade, which he was trying to eliminate. And at the end of his talk, he said, from now on, you will never be able to say you did not know. Uh, It took decades for the law to actually change. Right. But But he fulfilled his obligation as a Christian by serving as a witness to what the facts were. Wonderful. Then that's on the representative to do the right thing. Well, you're doing just that very thing. Thank you, sir. Uh, And thank you for putting your faith to work uh, in the way that you're doing. It represents our concept of good God here really well. Bill, thanks for your friendship and for all that you do. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.